Hello and welcome to the Open Labour Podcast. I'm joined as always by my fellow co-host Tom Hinchcliffe. Hi Tom, how are you doing? All right James, fellow co-host. It's very, very <laughs> comradely start to this. Well I am very comradely. Uh, are you okay though? I've heard you've got a bit of a cold mate. I'm fine, I do have a cold, it's definitely not Covid so if I sound all horrible and bunged up that's why but yeah, no we just a cold. Definitely just yeah. a cold. <laughs> okay, good. I'm giving you the excuse to all the listeners now if you start coughing and spluttering. So today we're going to be reflecting on the COP26. Now that the dust has settled and now that there's been some rigorous analysis on what was agreed. And to help us with the discussion, we're joined by a relatively frequent visitor on the show, Alex Sobel MP. Alex, I hear that congratulations in order. You've been recently appointed to the Shadow Minister for Natural Environment and Climate Change. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, James and Tom. That's right. I've, I've made a move from the Shadow DCMS team to the Shadow DEFRA team. Uh, covering natural environment and climate change. I was an environmental audit committee before I became a shadow minister, so it's terrain that I'm familiar with. So hopefully I can make a real impact for for the party. Brilliant. Yeah, so it's very apposite that you're joining us today to discuss COP26. So I suppose we could talk about COP26 all day, really, couldn't we? But Tom, I believe you've got a proposal for the format to ensure we, we cover all the bases and don't waffle too much. Yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of detail to get into that we certainly won't get into today. Um, but yeah, I think I think it'd be best if we just split it into kind of the four sections. So what 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 went well, what didn't go so well, which is a lot. Mm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and how the UK government did, uh, not just at COP, but representing the country on the world stage, as it yeah. did, and what and crucially, what Labour. I've do, would have done differently. I mean, Alex is in a good position um, with his new role now and his previous campaigning just to, you know, as a start, tell us where it went right, sure. where it went wrong and what Labour would do, even though, you know, I just start by saying, even though we didn't get the real commitments from the world's biggest polluters, which will come mm. on to, I mean, some of the main headlines were around stopping investment into new overseas fossil fuel projects, for example, yeah. and there was some some promising agreement about uh, methane emissions too, but which was mm. between the US and the EU again with a handful of other countries. But yeah. Alex, we'll start with what, what, what you think the main successes were. Well, I, th- I think you just, you just touched on them. Um, I mean, the, the headline, and I, I'll just maybe say why I was at COP and what I was doing. So I, I was at COP for a week and I was the, what's called the rapporteur for the Interparliamentary Union, which is the voice of all the parliaments in the world. It's the oldest multilateral um, institution in the world, in fact. Um, and so I had a seat in the room at COP, uh, in the plenary room, and I could, um, although I couldn't get into the bilateral meetings between countries, I could get in for all of the summary sessions and all the roundups, and I went to quite a few of those. So you got a feel for what was going on as it was going on. You got access to people who were who were on the front line of negotiating this. Um, and, you know, I was addressed by, you know, a number of ministers from, from different countries. I was actually in the plenary room in Barack Obama, um, addressed cop as well so um so the the big takeaway is that um the agreement that was struck in glasgow would take to 2.4 degrees warming which is still you know 0.9 degrees away from where we want to be and some of the major successes were as you said around methane methane is um 0.3 degrees warmer at its current levels but it also the other thing about methane is is it, it doesn't last in the environment very long. It lasts eight to ten years. So effectively, although it's important in and of itself, it buys you time because it because it because it 
because the methane that already exists dissipates after eight to ten years, while CO two is ve lasts very for a very long time in the environment in the atmosphere. It can last thousands of years. So eradicating the CO two doesn't remove it from the environment, while eradicating the methane does over quite a short period of time. So that that's why it's important, but it's also not a long term solution. Um, you know, we had the agreement on coal, though it's insufficient, but we're hoping other countries can join it. Um, and, and we had we had some movement on climate finance. We had some more minor um, agreements, but there are huge and gaping holes in it, you know, as, as we said. Um, but it's left the door open for us to get to 1.5 degrees either next year in Egypt, which I'm still not sure that we will next year, or the following year in Abu Dhabi. And if we really aren't where we need to be, by 2023, then then we're really very tight for time. And and the other thing is, is about delivery. So it's about going back next year and seeing what's been delivered on some of these um, major issues. Has the, have the methane reduction targets been met in the first year? You know, ha have um, coal-fired power stations been turned off? You know, where are we on some of these major issues just in this, in this 12 months? Because if we're not making progress, then you can sign any agreement you want, but if you're not delivering it, then then the the climate you can't negotiate the climate, you can't negotiate physics. It's not a political problem to be resolved. It is hard science. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think um, you describe it as kind of a stepping stone towards further, you know, agreements and actual action. Who is in charge of verification for these things? Because obviously, I know with human rights abuses and things like that, you have the UN and you have peacekeeping missions that verify that governments are keeping their word. Who does it in terms of COP? Is it the UN or is it? Is it it is the UN and the, um, and there's the, I mean, what, what should ideally happen is you've got the IPCC international level, then each country should have its own climate change committee, which obviously we do in the UK. That is not necessarily the case. We have an increasing number of climate change acts that pass around the world they usually include a climate change committee, which is independent of government, which is absolutely how it should be. Um, and then, then it's about add, it's about adding up all the commitments and it's about adding up all the action. So um, the, the, the issue is that, that, that we've got um, a number of areas where we need to catch up. So one of the things that I was involved with launching at COP was a parliamentary observatory on climate legislation, which was set up by um, two parliamentarians, one from Brazil, who, are, who I'm quite friendly with, on good terms with, and who's actually uh, been to, spoke at an open labour event at COP, and an Argentinian um, parliamentarian as well. And, and, and quite a number of countries, particularly in Latin and South America and the Caribbean, are signed up, plus other countries from around the world. And I signed up effectively for the UK, Parliament, um, and that that the role of that observatory is is to scrutinise in each individual country how they are meeting their targets, and to look at the laws that are being passed, and also to share good practice around the world. And we've got a really useful project in the UK that come on and look up at the Grantham Institute at UCL, and they have a database of climate change laws from around the world, and are doing some of that work. So the Parliamentary Observatory is going to link up with Grantham. And hopefully we can utilise that at a parliamentary level to do the scrutiny. But but in in a sort of um, sort of global policing role, then yes, it is the UN. It's interesting that you have that relationship with the Brazilians because they have President Bolsonaro, obviously, who's, who's quite a, a right wing, dangerous character. And and I do a lot of work on this, or I'm just starting to. And you know how how do you find interacting with 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 representatives from countries who's leaders don't necessarily have the political will in the right places to make these changes happen at the highest level 
Well, I mean, I think actually my biggest takeaway was um, from COP that there are a number of countries around the world where they're, where they're, we aren't getting the traction we should be getting. And even in European terms, we've got countries which are, which are real breaks on getting climate action. So like in European terms, Hungary is a good example. Um, uh, but, you know, countries like Brazil, Australia, India, uh, the big takeaway was that you work with the parliamentary opposition who are, who are on the left, of course, and in Hungary. And I met the deputy mayor of Budapest, actually, who's a really great um, uh, politician and really, you know, really progressive, really engaged, really dynamic. So um, so the person that from Brazil that I work with is um, Senator Jack Wagner and his role in the previous presidency, which is the president Dilma Rousseff, who had a number of trumped up charges and there was, you know, an attack by the right, including from the judiciary on her. He was her chief of staff. So the the big thing is is that I work you work with the Workers Party in Brazil and the Socialist Party who formed the opposition with some other parties, Social Democratic Party, etc. And then you try and work with them and support them. And then the hope is and the, the expectation now is and you just look at the Brazilian polling that Lula will come back and be president again. Then everything changes. Then we get a completely different sort of um partner and partnership. I mean, their problem then will be that we're in opposition and they're in government. But at the moment, we're both in opposition. So, um, but that's, you know, so we're working together on, on issues like scrutiny. And, and they've got particularly difficult leg legislation going through, which is far more dangerous than ours, you know, around um, legalisation, deforestation, for instance, which is a current fight they've got in the parliament, which Jack's involved with. Um, and at and, and our end, so our responsibility is that, that in the Environment Bill, it, um, it, it said that we wouldn't trade for goods that were a product illegal deforestation, right? That, that means that the, the deforestation has to be legal in that country. Yeah. But in Brazil, if that deforestation is legal, then that we can still buy the good. So, so, so from, yeah. a, from a Labour point of view, we want to close that loophole. And again, that's something for mm. me and the DEFRA team mm. to work with the people in, in the international trade team to work on the government so that all deforestation goods are banned from trade. Because mm. then it will take away some of the demand, some of the drive for that deforestation. And that's what we need to do. If they've got nowhere to sell their goods, then they'll stop deforesting because they've got no business. It is entirely, it is not really, they don't really care about the environment or the forest or the climate one way or another. The people that are involved in, in um, you know, um, whether it's ranching, whether it's mining, uh, whether it's um, palm oil, whatever it is, they don't really care as long as they're making money. If they stop making money, then they'll stop doing it. And they're going to try and find something else to do to make money, which may be hopefully less harmful. I was going to say, some of these deals, are they smoke and mirrors? Because Bolsonaro, you saw him really readily signing this um, deforestation deal. But y y your sort of mind says, well, surely Bolsonaro is not going to be signing a deal, uh, deal like this if it, it's actually robust. And, you know, there was no actual sign of, of actual policies on, on that deal. And, and it did look very similar to the deal that, that was struck back in 2014 that did literally nothing to slow down deforestation. So there was big question marks. And I was wondering if there was other other similar deals and declarations that, that were similar, similarly very porous, shall we say, lots of loopholes in them. Yeah, I mean, we have to look at our trade deals. I mean, what was interesting was, was the Brazilian pavilion that they had. Um, it was just full of greenwash. It was about, you know, eco-agriculture, how, you know, how, how Brazil takes eco-agriculture and all of this stuff. It was just horrendous. And any, you know, right thinking person wouldn't wouldn't even enter the Brazilian pavilion, which I didn't. And actually, the Brazilian opposition didn't use it at all. They used um, 
other bio, you know multilateral organizations pavilions to to put forward um what they want to do um but there are there are the you know we've got a similar situation around deforestation in indonesia um particularly in west papua but also in other in other provinces i mean even bali which is you know tourist hotspot um and um we've got issues around deforestation in in the congo basin particularly in the drc so again the 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 although there's less likely to be trade deals with with um drc uh, but but Indonesia is a real one to watch, particularly as we're trying to join the um, Pacific Trade Partnership. I can I can never remember what it's TPTPP or TTPTP, yeah. but whatever it is, it's got lots of T's and P's in it. Yeah. And the UK wants to join it, although and I made this like it was a joke, but there's a serious point to it. Um, that the only reason we qualified to join it is because because of the Pitcairn Islands, which is British <laughs> uh, territory. But um, and the minister sort of Greg Hand sort of rubbished me and said, no, no, it's because they're important trading partners. But you know, look how far away the Pacific is from the UK, and you know, we just have to, you know, it's a lot. A lot of it is 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 about politics, but we yeah. need to be very alive to the, the potential environmental destruction that some of these trade deals can bring. And it's a bit of the, you know, post-Brexit strongmanning, isn't it, from the government, this, when you're trying to explore different blocks, because they, they do it with, uh, they've done it with the UK-Andean trade agreement as well, aside from climate change, mm. Colombia, Peru, and I think it's Ecuador have their own problems, especially in Colombia, and they, they write human rights clauses into these, and they will do it with environment as well. But there's, there's absolutely no mechanism for, to, suspend, to suspend them or to use these, to use these clauses to kind of, make the foreign government stick to their obligations and the deals because it's not even an obligation so but i don't how do you did you meet the chinese government or because i'm thinking about you know with uh, countries without oppositions as such like saudi arabia china how do you engage with them because I, I imagine it's completely different i mean at an ipu level we do um and we had um you know i'm probably not massively telling tales out of school but the chinese the Iranians, the Saudis, there were there were certain issues of the Chinese in terms of the documents. We write what we the process we write an outcomes document, and that is the voice of the parliaments at COP. And then we encourage parliamentarians to go and utilise that with their national delegations, which is what what certainly what I did and what the Italians did, who were the co-presidents and and some of the others are very grateful for the documents. So they certainly did, but um, uh, but the Chinese tried to water down the outcomes document. They tried to put a two degrees warming clause, you know, or between one and a half to to run one and a half there were other areas where they were trying to water things down so you can see exactly there's no real you know they have a parliament of course and it is elected but there's no real difference between anybody who sits in the parliament they, they all they all take a line from the from the state there isn't really there isn't really the sort of scrutiny that we're used to in our parliament and then you know um at the actual ipu congress we had a we had a bit of a um you know bust up between the saudis and the iranians over yemen and you know it was over what might seem like in the scope of climate quite a minor issue about one particular ship that shipwrecked off the coast of Yemen and, and how you to deal with that cleanup. But but the but the Saudis and the Iranians must have a ma massive argument about it. Um, we didn't include it for obvious reasons in the document. Um, but you know, but but people bring their geopolitics, you know, to to the table when it comes to climate as well. Um, and actually military conflicts create a huge amount of carbon you know as well as everything else they do they also create a huge amount of carbon um because weapons are not you know be unsurprised here carbon free they're actually very carbon intensive things so um so yeah it does it does it's very hard to engage with them actually it's very hard to engage with them. particularly actually thinking about countries like saudi 
Um, they're they're obviously very invested in in um, in fossil fuel production. Aramco is, I think, the sixth or seventh biggest uh, company in the world. I think it's the biggest non-tech company in the world. You know, all the others are you know tech companies, Google and Amazon and Tesla and all the rest of it. They're the biggest non-tech one. So um, that they're very heavily invested in. It. They haven't got a very clear uh, net zero pathway. They, they, some of the other um, parts of, um, like in in uh, Dubai, they, their their oil reserves are already depleting, so they've moved into sort of renewable space, into post post oil, but the Saudis haven't. So these are real big big problems, and big issues, um, and they're always wanting to buy time because they know at some point they're going to have to go, but they always want to buy more time. I think they committed to um, uh, um, net zero by twenty seventy, which is just ridiculous. It's an absolutely ridiculous date. You know, we'll all be dead it's if everybody went twenty seventy. You know, yeah. so yeah. I was going to ask what what went wrong. I think we've covered a lot of that, really, and we've we've seen the seen the headlines. I mean, the big one essentially is that you know we need to limit global temperature rises to one point five degrees. The, the actions taken at the COP twenty six will limit it to between two point four and one point eight, which is just not good enough. So on that basis, you could say that it's a failure. But what you're saying is, Alex, what I'm picking up on is that it's the stepping stones towards meeting those targets and we'll see more next year in um, Abu Dhabi, isn't it? No, it's Egypt and then Egypt. Abu Dhabi. So, okay. yeah, so Sharm el-Sheikh next year. They're really, they're really causing themselves to suffer in the mm. climate conferences from now on after Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they've gone for a nice winter, winter destinations, but yeah. Um, but I mean, actually, you know, I was really only touching the surface of that. So if you've got to think about it, there was, there was particularly from the global South, um, there was a feeling that the coal um, agreement by the by this, including the UK, was it was a was partly a distraction from getting an oil and gas agreement. And there's much more oil and gas usage in the world than coal. Um, the 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 there was very little, you know, that climate finance is far um, less than necessary. There wasn't really much progress on loss and damage. There was very little progress on international aviation shipping. And again, you know, we talk about these um, trade deals from, from you know, the post-Brexit trade deals. If we're doing those deals, those goods, the physical goods will have to come a lot further. So that means they'll be shipped a lot further. That means that that, that that will create a lot more carbon. And these are exactly the sort of issues our government wants to ignore. So those there wasn't a lot of program, progress in international aviation shipping. And international aviation is difficult as well. And they decided to leave international aviation because aviation's had a hit because of COVID. But that's not going to last forever. So, um, you know, so aviation emissions is some, again something. And you need to, you know, and there's a, a vague hope that technological innovation will solve it, which it won't, not for a long time. So you need to have demand measures, which nobody's willing to take at the moment. So there's a lot of difficult issues which weren't addressed in terms of what's called mitigation, in terms of dealing with a problem. And then there's adaptation. So, you know, we're going to have a problem. Um, whatever we do going on, there's one and a half degrees is still a big problem. And then so how do you adapt those countries in the global south, particularly the low-lying countries, small island developing states, Bangladesh, etc. Um, and there's been a failure to, for that as well. And we I, I had we had the Speaker of the Tuvalu Parliament at the IPU uh, conference, and he said that they had a plan for a seawall around Tuvalu. They had the donor money for the seawall and they were and they were given um, consultants from different particularly European countries to deliver the seawall. It's been on going on for years, they've got no seawall because the mm. consultants are arguing with each other and being paid all the way through. So there needs to be, you know, 
real focus on delivery of adaptation measures because if they don't get their seawall in the next 10 years the Tuvaluans then they'll have to leave Tuvalu and the country won't exist anymore because the sea will have covered it and if you look at Bangladesh you know we're talking about potentially as much as 30 percent of Bangladesh going in the next 10 years um and being underwater for, for more of the year than it's above water which clearly isn't tenable in terms of people living there so um you know, so the, the the adaptation measures are absolutely needed, and people are just you know you know donor countries and consultants are just wasting people's time. If this was in the UK or in Holland, they'd have made these measures would have been finished years ago. Because you can imagine if you said oh eleven thousand people's houses go underwater, and you were the MP there, you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't be mucking about, would you? You know, so that it would have it would have got done by now. But because it's the Tuvaluans and it's you know in the Pacific and they're a long way away. Um, it just doesn't happen. So what's the what's the issue with that? I've, I've read some of the headlines, Alex. It was something to do with there was a pledge of a hundred billion pounds made available to these countries per year, and it's it's just yeah. not materialised. Now, was that gifted, or were they loans, or were they underwritten, or? So um, it's a hundred billion of 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 climate finance. Um, the the main issue is one: it's not it's not it's 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 although it's been pledged, it won't start for another two years. So it's about the delay. And then the second issue is um, that 100 billion is woefully insufficient. So, you know, at the IPU event, we had, we had people from different countries um, coming up with their own figures, you know, everything from 700 billion to 2 trillion um, was required. So, you know, that actually, the amount of money uh, that's needed is is far greater. A hundred billion really isn't going to resolve, and even just for adaptation, is going to resolve the issues. The other thing is is what's been called loss and damage. So you know the 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 UK, if you add up all its historic emissions, is the eighth biggest emitter historically because we started the industry. We we started the industrial revolution. We started first. We started emitting first, um, and um, and we peaked probably in the UK around sort of 80 years ago with our industrial production, industrial output. Um, and um, the issue, issue is, is that is that these countries didn't industrialise and they didn't get any benefits of industrialisation, but they're getting all the, the, the loss and the damage from it. So they're saying that the countries like the UK, US, etc., need to make reparations effectively for the loss and damage to them. And actually, we're getting very little traction on that. So it isn't just about. So people think, oh, yeah, we've been really kind and giving this aid to these countries, but actually, it should be thought about, and rightly so, that that they've they've they're suffering damage from um from from things that benefited us, you know, while we're suffering much less damage. Agreed, absolutely. Shall we go on to the things that people want to hear, which is us sagging off the government? Because that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for, isn't it? I just uh, just how the UK government handled it. I think just to start, I think the government did seem not not unprepared as such, but didn't take it as seriously as they should have. I know, I know they had Alex Sharma as the COP president who did a very good job and, and he tried and, and, you know, no one doubts that he's committed. But I, I think the government got itself wrapped up in, I think it was the French fishing row at the time. And then they announced, it was like the budget two days before or something, they announced a cut on the duty of internal flights. So just, you know, comp- doing things that just completely undermine that's a the spirit of togetherness. So that literally, this this issue affects everybody in the world um, by, you know, verbally attacking our closest ally constantly in France, and then just undermining uh, the UK's climate credentials completely just days before you know it's due to begin. I think 
the, the deal itself we've covered, but I think it, I think it was Keir that paid tribute to the COP, COP president in um, in Parliament. And, yeah, and Ed, and Ed. I mean, Ed, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, the thing is, Alex Sharma did try his best. Nobody's denying that, and he was upset at certain points. They weren't getting more pros than they did, but um, we've had two years to do. So we had an extra year. Um, if you look at the Paris Agreement. Their COP president was Laurent Fabius. He was a former French prime minister. You know, who did the who have the Americans put up as their, you know, climate uh, climate ambassador, climate um, envoy? John Kerry, former, um, you know, US um, presidential election candidate for the Democrats and uh, Secretary of State. I mean, no offence, but who's heard of Alok Sharma? Like, no, nobody, no, outside of Reading, nobody's heard of him. Right. You know, other countries, when they appoint COP presidents, appoint former prime ministers, former foreign secretaries, people of long standing with big, you know, big phone books and lots of international relationships. And I think that was so we were on the back foot to start. And actually, Alex Sharma was the second COP president because Amber Rudd. Who is he? Who is he, Alex? Is that his MP for, for Reading West? I didn't. I did not know that. I did not know that. I thought he was. I don't know who I thought he was. I had no idea. He's been in the government a while, I think. I think he yeah, was, he was, he was the business, business secretary. secretary. Yeah, and then they thought, oh well, that's a big figure. We'll put the business secretary in. I mean, they should have appointed someone like William Hague. Yeah, that's who they should yeah. have appointed. You know, they, you know, I don't think David Cameron would have done it, and I'm not sure it would have worked with David Cameron and Boris Johnson. But William Hague, that's the sort of level that you should be, you know, talking about. Ken Clark, that's what maybe. countries do. I don't know about that, but um, why is he not? It's, is he not bothered about? Um, oh, no, he's not good on climate. He's terrible. He's on, not. No, 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 no. And and William Hague, you know, his international affairs expertise is out of this world. To be honest, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. as much as I don't agree with anything he says, he's um, he's very well versed. I mean, yeah. the, the the issue I see from the UK government's perspective and how they handled it, it was the after afterwards that annoyed me the most. The, the prime minister kind of Johnson was just dressing it up as as there, there was no realism about. His comments and it was all not even spin it was just you know falsehoods and and over over exaggerations about how successful it was and that doesn't help anyone because we'll all see what happens in a few years when <laughs> when everything's under well the i think i think we all know boris johnson doesn't do detail he probably hasn't got a clue what what was involved in the in the agreement or what the issues the technical issues were and he just wanted to spin something successful you know to you know as a publicity stunt um so, so you know that 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 is definitely that is definitely an issue. So, the the run up to it was was they were underprepared. Um, the, the the delivery wasn't as good as it should have been, you know, compared to previous cops I've been to, uh, and the agreement wasn't sufficient. Um, and then you, you're right, the UK the UK itself in terms of its recent policy announcements taking us further away from it the area of the uk have done well in for quite a long time is energy and we continue to make progress in energy but in every other area we're backsliding so this idea that we're reducing domestic air passenger duty and that's the most polluting form of air travel the shorter you fly the more per mile co2 per mile is is um expelled um and then this idea that oh yeah well we've increased um air passenger for long-haul flights which aren't flying at the moment anyway you know there won't be that many long-haul flights between this budget and the next budget and two they put four quid on the long-haul flights which is flights over five and a half thousand miles there's not that many planes that do over five and a half thousand miles you know it's just not it's just it, it was a ridiculous thing you know so effectively we're going to create additional tax that nobody's going to pay and we're going to cut tax on the most polluting bit of aviation so that was absolutely ludicrous you know and, they, and for years actually they, they've they put measures in 
which have taken us further away from from reaching our own domestic goals. So, for instance, solar feed-in tariffs, again, is another a great example. The Green Homes Grant they did just last year was a, was a failure. It was a failure because of mainly because of the bureaucratic nature of it. Actually, it wasn't it wasn't a bad idea. It was just it was just very poorly implemented. Yeah, and then they scrapped that, didn't they? The first yeah, opportunity. So. Yeah. Because people yeah. couldn't get the vouchers because the bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. But at the same time, what I meant before about Johnson dressing things up is that I think it, the coal agreement is the worst thing. I think they, they span it as 190 countries and organisations have signed up to this coal agreement and agreed to end coal. But then when you look at it, it's like 46. 46 of the 190 were actual countries. 23 were new. And then, you know, 10 of them don't even use coal. And then the 13 biggest coal users which is china the us india and australia didn't sign it and you just think there's there's no political will there but at the same time that the political will isn't the only thing needed when people people's homes start ending up under war <laughs> he's dressing himself up isn't he as a you know sort of he knows that it's politically popular to be green but as you say, he's, he's not got the will. But I'm, I'm wondering about, Alex, you'll, you'll have a good insight into this. And, and well, you, you will do going forward as well, given your new role. Alongside levelling up, the idea of a, a green industrial revolution or whatever you want to call it, um, sounds like a good, a good idea. And it's something that the Tories have, again, stolen from, from the ideas that came from our manifestos in 17 and 19. But yet there was nothing in the budget about that, even though the budget that was, was it during the COP or just before the COP? I can't remember. Just before. Just before. Just yeah. before the COP. So you think that would have been the perfect time to make an announcement um, on this particular uh, policy area. What, what's, what's happening there? Why is there no, because it makes sense for the country. It makes sense politically. Politically, why is the why aren't the Tories making more hay with that, or actually taking action? Uh, industrial industrial is difficult. I think it's what people don't get. Industrial is difficult, and it involves the state intervening in the market. The last thing the Tories want to do is intervene in the market. It involves the state getting involved in infrastructure. Involves the state directing business. Involves the state being involved in R and D. And these are all things that the Tories are ideologically unprepared to do. So what they like to say is that they've got something, which is that, but then do them, but then do the minimum, you know, so effectively what they've done is things that, 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 that we're quite used to them doing. So, you know, um, tax breaks, so some tax breaks, you know, but actually tax breaks aren't, aren't particularly driven by, by climate concerns. So fossil fossil fuel emitters can get the same tax breaks that clean energy people can get. So it doesn't work at all. So they haven't put they haven't put what I'd call a net zero test through through their industrial strategy. So it's not really a green industrial strategy at all. It's just an industrial strategy. Um, and they want you know what they want also is you know um, shovel ready projects and and things that they can, so when the election comes they can stand in front of them and say we we did this. But that they are. The, the problem is actually clean tech is a lot of it's emerging technology. So it's not as easy as that. Some things are offshore wind. You know, every, every Tory is going to get a boat come the election and be going off the coast and, and sat in a boat in front of a big wind turbine. But actually onshore projects, you know, so some of these things, the technology is miles away from being ready and it might never be ready. And we might we sh- maybe shouldn't rely on it like carbon capture and storage. Um, but other, other things like hydrogen, you know, that needs scaling up, need demand measures that they are, you know, technologically feasible, but they need a big state intervention. You know, they need the state to say, right, what we're going to do is we're going to fund the, the, the ordering of a thousand hydrogen buses and we're going to pay for hydrogen refueling stations 
and we're going to pay for electrolyzers to make the hydrogen. They're not prepared to do that. It's too much state intervention. But that's what's needed. In 10 years, they won't need to do that because it'll be vested and it'll be the norm. But to get over the hump, you need big state intervention. I know the Tories just aren't prepared to do that while we are. You know, we announced at conference we put £28 billion into a Green New Deal and that investment into all of these sort of projects, particularly infrastructure, because you need a completely different set of infrastructure to what you've got now to, to be able to deliver these sort of things. It's really interesting, Alex. I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. It's about headlines for the Tories. It's it's very short-sighted politics, isn't it? And, you know, hopefully it'll turn around and, and bite them because um, people see that they're not delivering on the, on the big, grand gestures that they make in the headlines. Tom? To be honest, the more, the more I hear the Tories talk about green energy and, 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 and green, green, green and things like that, the more parties and governments say about that they're green and everything is green the more i the less i trust them to be honest i mean it should be subconscious or and i know it is for us especially when ed was shadow business secretary that you know everything we do has a green angle to it if it didn't then we wouldn't do it and then especially when it comes to business and spending so the more and more this rhetoric comes out about you know, the, the, the UK government is the greenest in, in the Western world and all this is just absolute garbage. And it's, it's, it's just another way to keep reiterating a point that brings everybody's kind of expectations lower. And then when we do something, it, it seems like we're going too far or spending too much money. It's all part of that, you know, as you say, short-sighted political game that they're playing. And it's just, it's, I don't think it's going to wash. And especially when People start as they are now, even in this country, seeing the effects of climate change and things like that. I think people will start taking it far more seriously, even in the areas like mainly, to be honest, working class areas that aren't, you know, climate change deniers, but it's just not a priority for them because they can't see it happening. That, you know, there's other issues, pennies in their pocket, that, that is much more important to them. And I, mm. I, I don't really blame them. But now mm. people start seeing, you know, the actual effects of it and on on their budgets as well as bills go up and things like that i think that's when it starts to cut through but maybe not yet fingers crossed i mean it looks that way doesn't it in the polls that people are starting to to become wise to the tories bluster and that it is all fake and that they're not actually delivering on what they've set out to deliver on back in 2019 when they were first elected but who knows eh i think yeah, I, I don't know what else, but <laughs> <I think it's, laughs> yeah. this is the bit where we start chopping it down now, isn't it? Start <laughs> editing bits out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got <laughs> the conversation. Now, so, yeah. Are you gonna do okay, well, that was a brilliant discussion. I think that gave us some really good insight, Alex, into the COP itself, but also some of the thinking behind some of the decisions that were made, certainly in the uh, Tory camp, but as some of the wider decisions that were made internationally as well. A really, really good insight. Really appreciate that. Thanks. That was a um, really useful discussion. I think we, we're just going to have more and more discussions in open lake. We've got these international links now with so many countries, Brazil, which I mentioned, uh, Belgium, Chile, uh, South Africa, all of these countries are really willing and politicians left really to speak to us about climate and post-COP issues. So we're really looking forward to having a great series of events online and some even in person from some of our European colleagues on, on climate and, and the post-COP issues. Isn't there a Open Labour climate event happening pretty soon? I cancelled it. Oh, right. Yeah, I cancelled it because, because of the COVID restrictions. So Melissa from Belgium couldn't come. So I had to, we're going to yeah. do it in the new year. Yeah. But there's also other things. And Alex is right when he says, 
you know, about how many issues there are because it's transport, it's energy, it's aviation and things like that. And I think Open Labour has a massive, you know, database of things to talk about when we run these events. So I think I think there's you could literally do a podcast or an event about every single little bit of this. And it just it would take hours and hours to talk about because it affects every single bit of people's and aspects yeah. of people's lives. So yeah, thanks, Alex. Agree. Really, really, really helpful. And I'm sure a lot of this will all feature in the open labor position paper that will be published pretty soon do we have a date for that yet alex i am involved with that but yeah. I, I don't well, I mean, we're, 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 we're going to have a conference in the spring and then we're going to bring um, a draft position paper for members to look at and amend for the spring that's the plan brilliant okay well I look forward to that then thanks a lot <laughs>